final look at the 2016 race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast in the arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simondinger. In the closing days of a convention-defying and bitterly waged election, our curiosity wandered from traditional battleground states to a few contested states we had not expected. In our podcast this week, we focused on three red states, Arizona, Utah, and Georgia, in which Hillary Clinton and her advisors decided Donald Trump was a weak enough rival to warrant a head-on challenge from the Democratic nominee. For example, Clinton held an event Wednesday in Arizona, a state that hasn't backed a Democrat for president since 1996, when Bill Clinton, her husband, won there. This week, Trump emulated the challenge, fishing for votes in Clinton-favored states such as Michigan, New Mexico, and Colorado. Real Clear's polling analyst David Byler joined Sean Trendy, RCP's senior election analyst, to dissect the political dynamics afoot in the three states while also taking us on a final tour of the Electoral College map. In our Newsmaker segment this week, I interviewed one of the foremost experts on presidential transitions, Martha Joint Kumar, who explained why candidates' preparations to govern well before Election Day are now perceived by many as responsible, even critical, rather than exercises in hubris. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com, and please stay tuned for more podcasts from our team. First up, you'll hear from data and polling specialists David Byler and Sean Trendy. Sad day here. It's the last episode of our In the Arena podcast series. And for our data segment, we have our first guest ever back with us, Sean Trendy. Sean is the senior elections analyst for us at Real Clear Politics. He's sort of our chief data and elections person here at RCP. He authored a book called Lost Majority. And if you're listening to this podcast... I'm certain that you're already familiar with his work and know who he is, so thanks for taking the time out, Sean. Thanks for having me. Okay, so quick note before we get started. Uh, Sean and I had to tape this on Monday because of our travel schedules, and this podcast gets posted on Thursday. So if anything we say gets overtaken by events, I want to apologize in advance. Uh, And I think that these questions are written in a way that sort of keeps them evergreen, so we'll get into it. And we're going to start with kind of a weird trend in the map in terms of its comparison to 2012. So uh, last week, I got some data on Twitter about where Trump was overperforming Romney and where he was underperforming Romney, and basically found that Trump's overperformance was correlated with uh, how Democratic a state was. So if a state is really blue, Trump tended to run slightly ahead of Romney. If it was really red, he tended to run sort of behind him. Uh, Now, it's important to note that the range of sort of over and under performances wasn't big, and it's not like we're reversing the map or something. Um, But whenever I see a trend like this, I'm tempted to explain it in terms of sort of college education among whites, uh, because that seems like it's always the answer to every question in this election. And I guess the things I want to talk to you about, Sean, are first off, if Uh, this kind of trend, this sort of flattening is a real thing that you've been seeing as well, or, and also what you think is behind it. Is it the education gap? Are there other things happening? Uh, Just what that looks like. Well, I think there's a couple things going on. Um, I, I think if you're a Republican voter in a swing state who doesn't like Trump, you're kind of aware of that status. Um, but you're also aware that you're, your status in a swing state, so you're probably more likely to kind of stay on board. If you're a Republican, 
it, so you feel like you have a little bit more of a pass. So, for example, in Texas, a lot of Republicans know that they can go ahead and vote for Hillary Clinton or for a third party or stay home, and it's not going to affect the outcome ultimately. So it's easier to square your partisan loyalties uh, with your feelings about the candidate. Um, and perhaps the same is true in reverse for Clinton, although when I look at the map, uh, when I see the bluer states, I see a geographic distribution. That is, Trump seems to be running, and again, we're talking in terms of polls here, so the poll, we don't know how things are actually going to shake out on Election Day, but the polls for Trump um, are stronger in New England, and I think, uh, which happens to be blue. I, I think part of that is um, that Trump has a very New England personality. If you go back and you look over time, there is a correlation when Republicans run a Southerner, um, George W. Bush, for example, they run a little better in the South than if they don't run one. And similarly, when uh, Democrats ran John Kerry, they had one of their best showings in New England ever. So these cultural cues do matter. I think the fact that Trump shares a lot of the cultural cues with New Englanders without college degrees um, in particular, is, is driving a lot of this election. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And so uh, one theme that's sort of uh, our topic for the week across the Swing State series, across the uh, podcast, is sort of unconventional uh, battleground states and sort of what's happening. Why is this map wider? So uh, we're going to go into a couple individual states now uh, and just kind of talk about the quirks that make them sort of act differently than they might otherwise act in this cycle. Uh, so the first one is Utah, which has been uh, the topic of a lot of conversation. And it's one of the few races where there seems to be a serious three-way race to actually win the state. And the equation seems relatively simple, is that essentially Utah is a heavily Mormon state. Uh, Mormons don't like Donald Trump. He's not a very sort of Mormon personality in his personal life or in what he emphasizes in terms of policy. So when a third party candidate like Evan McMullen comes along, who actually is a Mormon himself, I think, uh, a lot of people uh, are willing to jump ship from the Republicans and uh, towards the independent. And I guess that seems like a relatively simple storyline, but is that all that's going on there? Is that right? Is there more to it? And, like, if you had to put odds on who's going to win Utah uh, between Trump, Clinton, McMullen, what do you think you'd put it at? The story with uh, Evan McMullen is, is basically what you said, that, that, you know, Trump is about as anti-Mormon a personality as you can get, uh, if we're pandering to stereotypes here. Um, and also, Evan McMullen is running a campaign in Utah. Um, that's kind of like the name of the game. And it, it's an, I, I would put the money on Trump uh, just because it's such a red state, but it's a fascinating scenario you can cook up. If you take one of these 269, 269, or two, you know, Trump weighing 270, 268 that people have cooked up, but you flip uh, Utah into Evan McMullen's uh, basket, no one gets to 269, and so then we have a three-way race that goes to the House, um, Evan McMullen could conceive, I mean, it, it's not a 0% possibility that Evan McMullen, who would be probably the fifth place popular vote winner, could end up being the president. Mm -hmm. Next state, Arizona. Um, so one 
thing that I'm kind of interested in talking about with Arizona is we can talk about it in broad strokes in terms of the polling being close and there being a lot of uh, Hispanics uh, voters and things like that. But I think that you've uh, talked about it uh, really well in terms of an illustration of uh, the Jan Brewer versus sort of John McCain strategy to win Arizona. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of uh, talk our listeners through that, talk about how that does or doesn't relate to uh, the 2016 election, and uh, sort of if you have any thoughts about kind of some of the other uh, small groups that are in Arizona that could potentially swing it, the uh, Latter-day Saints vote, the, uh, you know, sort of Native American population, groups like that. Yes, Arizona is is a fascinating state um, because it's, it's fairly diverse, but it also has, it's pretty Republican, too. Um, And so there's an interesting recent past there. Most of the Republicans have kind of been in the the John McCain, Jeff Flake mold. You know, a lot of Hispanic outreach recognizing that the Hispanic population is, you know, about 20% of the electorate or so. Uh, And so you you have seen um, traditionally very kind of moderate Republicans, at least on uh, immigration issues, um, not moderate overall. Uh, But with Jan Brewer becoming governor um, in 2009, I believe, uh, the state passed a law, a a controversial law, uh, requiring um, a number of things, including, you know, checking the the immigration status of people who were pulled over if they were suspected uh, of being illegal immigrants. And so a lot of people thought the state that Brewer might lose because of this. And actually, she didn't do any worse than Republicans in the past uh, in the state. She won handily in 2010, and then her successor won handily in 2014. What happened was that, as predicted, the Republican share of the Hispanic vote plummeted um, from like 45% for John McCain to 25% for Jan Brewer. Uh, but what happened, and the Republican share of, of college-educated whites did too, but the reason that Brewer was able to hold serve was that she did better among whites without college degrees in the state. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of the predecessor uh, for the Trump strategy of, you know, okay, we'll take a hit with non-whites, we'll take a hit with um, whites with college degrees, but whites without college degrees, we can make a lot of that up because people don't understand they're almost whites without college degrees are almost a majority of the electorate. Uh, so um, that kind of brings us to today where, you know, you have Trump who has alienated a lot of Hispanics, alienated a lot of whites without college degree or whites with college degrees, trying to keep in it with whites without college degrees. Now, what makes a difference is this, this is a presidential election, so we tend to see higher Hispanic turnout. Um, this is, you know, he has been even more extreme in his statements about Hispanics. Uh, as you know, there's a large Native American population in the northeastern corner of the state, which tends to be heavily Democratic, and uh, there's a large Mormon Latter-day Saint population um, spillover from Utah, which traditionally gives a lot of votes to Republicans that may not be doing that this year. All those factors combined make it a swing state. It's a state that's only voted Democratic once uh, since 1948, uh, but that once was in 1996 for Bill Clinton. Hmm. Interesting. Really interesting. Okay. Um, so 
Next up, sort of uh, in the docket, is uh, Georgia. And um, Georgia's one that's kind of gone back and forth depending on where the national polling is. Um, when Hillary Clinton's doing really well, you might see Trump only leading by like a point or two in some uh, poll out of the state. The, and uh, it's interesting because Georgia's, you know, about seven points more Republican than the national average. Um, so you would think that if Clinton, you know, wins in a blowout, which uh, she probably won't now, but she's been ahead by that much in the polls at various points, that she might be able to carry Georgia. But um, one thing that I kind of want to talk about is how the demographics of the state might sort of hamper that or not hamper that. And um, it's a phenomenon that I believe is called inelasticity, where um, basically the demographics of the state make it harder to move one way or the, one way or the other. So I think it'd be helpful for our listeners if you could just talk a little bit about kind of that inelasticity, if you think Georgia's uh, a state that's possible to swing or uh, this time around, or is it a matter of time before it becomes like Virginia and North Carolina, or just what's going on in terms of the trends and actually trying to swing that state? Yeah, so every two years we get some cue that Georgia is getting ready to turn blue. Um, it does have changing demographics. The Atlanta suburbs aren't as uh, you know as conservative as some other portions of the state. Uh, there's actually been kind of a, a there's this thing called the Great Migration that occurred uh, in the early portion of the 20th century where African Americans left the South and moved north. Now there's sort of a reverse Great Migration going on to Georgia, so the African American share and the Hispanic share of the population is rising. Um, but problem is that these predictions just never come true. Um, and maybe it will this year, but the, the problem is that the white vote in Georgia is very Republican on the order of 70%, voting 70% for Republicans. Um, so I just, I have a hard time uh, seeing it happen. The other thing that we've noticed about Georgia is that uh, early voting participation among African Americans is down. Uh, compared to 2012. This is actually a nationwide phenomenon we're seeing in early voting. It's hard to read too much into early voting because you don't know who shows up on election day. But again, it's not particularly consistent with this notion that there's going to be a huge surge um, in non-white turnout or a decline in white turnout that's going to cost Donald Trump the state. Now, it's possible. Georgia is one of those states that, you know, if, if the bottom falls out for Trump, uh, on election day, you know, if Hillary Clinton ends up winning by seven or eight points, then Georgia will go, uh, will probably go blue. But the trends are going the other way right now. I'm probably seeing, a, you know, more of a two to four point Clinton win. So I don't think Georgia's going to end up going. Sure. Yeah. Um, then the last one is Maine. So um, Maine sort of has swung really in a pretty short amount of time uh, from kind of a reliably democratic state in the last election to uh, having Trump compete in half the state. And for those who aren't aware, uh, Maine has two congressional districts. Uh, they each give the winner of that congressional district uh, one of their electoral votes. So Trump uh, could potentially be able to break off uh, one of Maine's congressional districts and get an electoral vote out of a state that kind of we usually don't think about. And uh, I guess the thing that I'm wondering about is, is this kind of the 
the upside to what we were talking about a minute ago with Trump uh, driving off college, or part of the upside, to Trump driving off sort of college-educated whites in favor of non-college-educated whites. So maybe he uh, gives Virginia to Democrats, but uh, this is one of sort of the states or part of a state that he might be able to try to get in return for that trade. Yeah, so Maine's a weird state. Um, you know, people lump it in with New England, but, you know, the southern southern half of the state is kind of like Cambridge, um, and the northern half of the state is kind of like Arizona, except cold. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's a really stark divide. Um, upstate Maine really is very rural. Um, you get a lot of whites without college degrees in the logging business or whatever. Um, and we have seen in kind of the northern tier congressional districts over the course of the last eight years, um, you know, the, the um, Iron Range district um, with Duluth, the Minnesota 8, elected a Republican in 2010 um, and, and very nearly kept him in 2012, uh, elected a Republican in 2018. Um, we've seen the Green Bay district and northwestern Wisconsin. In other words, this is not just about northern Maine. This is, this is mm-hmm. these northern other places. 
when Trump is best behavior Trump, this, this is a race that wants, because of the fundamentals, this is a race that wants to be a close race. And when Trump isn't going out reminding people of why they don't like him, um, it trends towards a close race. So that's what was happening before uh, this Comey blow-up, uh, the FBI blow-up on Friday. Uh, so I'm not sure if it does tighten how much of that we can credit to or detract from uh, the FBI investigation, comments, whatever you want to call it, um, versus just a natural tightening of the race. Awesome. Well, that's, uh, that's all I have. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. And in the second segment, you'll hear from presidency scholar Martha Joint Kumar, director of the Independent White House Transition Project and author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power. With me today is Towson University Professor Emeritus Martha Joint Kumar, director of the Independent White House Transition Project and someone I've known a long time and author of books and studies analyzing presidential transitions. Uh, one of the things that she's been doing this year, among many, is working with a colleague, Professor Terry Sullivan of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, under a Moody Foundation grant, to convene expert discussions, to bring together experts to create uh, documents and studies, to be of assistance to the upcoming transition to succeed President Obama. The project's materials at whitehousetransitionproject.org are intended to serve as roadmaps for those preparing to come into a new administration or to join a West Wing team. And as I just said, you can see everything that's being prepared, documents that are supposed to be useful for anyone who's interested in transitions or coming in at the website, whitehousetransitionproject.org. Martha, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Alexis. I really appreciate being here this afternoon. I'm going to learn as much as anyone, even though I've covered White Houses and have been uh, watching transitions for a number of cycles. So let me just start with this idea that we've seen over many, many, many cycles, and that is the concept that a President Clinton or a uh, uh, President-elect Trump, President-elect Clinton, could be considered presumptuous uh, for even thinking about transition or even thinking about talking about it as a candidate leading up to Election Day. And we've heard uh, Donald Trump's surrogates sometimes try to take uh, Secretary Clinton to task for even thinking and talking about a transition to governing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have we seen that idea mature or change over time? It used to be considered something that you just didn't want to do, look like you were measuring the drapes. Yes, it looked like a hubris, arrogance, but people uh, gradually have realized and I think it's particularly with September 11th that you need to be prepared when you come into governing because there are a lot of hazards that can, that can trip you up. For example, um, the, on Inauguration Day in 2009, there was a threat on the inauguration which required the incoming and the outgoing Secretaries of Homeland Security uh, State and Robert Gates at Defense, as well as the NSC uh, advisor Steve Hadley and and John Brennan, the terrorism advisor, too, um, and other uh, some other cabinet members and chiefs of staff, incoming and outgoing, to get together in the situation where, while 
the incoming president, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, were upstairs being in the blue room being entertained by the Bushes with a coffee. And in the Situation Room, they were discussing a real possibility of a threat on the inauguration that would be an IED that was somewhere back from the inauguration itself. And what should they do if such a, a, uh, an event took place, which fortunately it didn't. But I think it brought home to everyone how serious a transition is and how vulnerable a time it is. And I think that September 11th uh, showed it as well because even by September, there were many vacant positions in, at, uh, at high levels in the departments and agencies. And that makes it much more difficult to, um, to uh, select your choices of what you're going to do. And, uh, and so I think that there was a focus on appointments after that and trying to get them moving faster, and also um, a sense that they had to have very good continuity of, of government preparations. So I know in, in uh, 2008, when the hubris argument came up, Clay Johnson, who was the deputy for management at OMB and who was the executive director of uh, Bush's transition into office, said that not to plan would be irresponsible, that it was hardly a case of arrogance. It would be irresponsibility if you didn't plan. And so the Bush administration really set the stage for early planning. And much of what they did in 2008 has been memorialized in legislation in 2010 and in 2016. Martha, one of the things that um, I know that you wrote about in your book, Before the Oath, which uh, chronicled the transition and analysis of the transition from uh, George W. Bush out to President Obama coming in is that uh, Hillary Clinton was then a New York senator and so as a former first lady who came in she had obviously seen her her husband's transition as a New York senator she had witnessed the discussion that you just described about what would happen at the inauguration obviously she was not the president-elect she had hoped to be and now she's a candidate herself thinking through what she might like to do and what kind of planning she needs uh, as a former Secretary of State, someone who knows a lot. Is, would we say that she's further ahead in her thinking or are, are, are both candidates, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, about the same place with their transition teams? You, you've seen behind the scenes. How would you describe the two teams that they've formed? Well, I think that um, yeah, both of them are certainly um, are working on it. She had been thinking about it early in the year. She talked about the appointments process and, um, and how you have to have, uh, try to have around 400 people confirmed by the August congressional recess. So she uh, certainly has thought about it early. And uh, in that particular uh, discussion in the Situation Room in January 20th and 2009, um, one of the participants, Steve Hadley, the National Security Advisor for uh, President Bush, said that she had the best of the observations. Um, and she said, Is, are the Secret Service going to come and, and pull the president off the podium? And she said, I don't think so. 
because she knew that the optics of that would be so bad that the U.S. system could be disrupted by, um, by one event. Um, so she, she has, um, I think, has had uh, a good, I- good idea of what transition involves, what um, kinds of preparations you need to have. And so she certainly prepared early, but one of the things and one of the people that, uh, that she has working on her team is John Podesta, who ran the transition for Barack Obama, and he really did a crackerjack job of it. Uh, one of the things that you have to do during a transition is you have your policy teams working on, on getting your uh, early initiatives in, your executive orders, uh, memoranda to federal government agencies, and then whatever legislation that you're interested in. Uh, you have the policy teams working on that, and then you have your agency review teams. These are teams of people who mostly have worked in these government agencies before, who then go into the departments and agencies looking for information on what the budgets are, what programs they are, what the status of those programs are. Um, and they have a lot of questions about uh, positions and what kind of, of um, uh, people that you need, what kinds of skills you need for various positions. That's something that needs to be done as part of a, tra- a basic part of, of a transition. And uh, Podesta ran those. And between the two, the policy teams and the agency review teams, there were 679 people. And, and that was something he organized very well. And one of the ways that, that he did it was to create a template that, uh, of information that the people should go in, in the teams, when they're going in the departments and agencies, the kinds of information they should gather and how they should write it up. And he said he didn't want uh, first drafts, he wanted third drafts at least. And so they ended up being very helpful. In the case of Donald Trump, what do we know or what can you say about the planning team that he has put in place? He's put in uh, place a team that was assembled by uh, uh, Chris Christie and Governor Christie of New Jersey. And uh, the person that's uh, running it on the day-to-day basis is Rich Bagger, who was his uh, chief of staff and who served in the legislature and has worked on the outside in the, as a, man- a management person in the pharmaceutical industry. And, um, and he's brought a real professionalism to it. Um, and I think when you, uh, you know, we're following the campaigns and it just seems to be some, some matter of, co- of chaos around the, the, uh, the campaigns. But when you go into the, to the headquarters, the transition headquarters, one of the things of both the Obama people, uh, the uh, Clinton people and the uh, Trump people, that one of the things you notice, it's, it's quiet. People are, are working. They're working in groups. I, uh, recently, in the, in the Trump operation, they had uh, groups of people working around tables on, on projects and, and um, uh, uh, using varieties of, um, of sources of information. And uh, uh, I was going over some information with, uh, with some people, some information we had prepared. And uh, uh, people had time to listen. And, um, and, uh, and, and people to think. 
and, and to talk. So that was very reassuring to me. There really should be a difference between uh, campaigning, which is day-to-day, have you won the day? And that's what people are working on that time frame. You have one thing that you want to do, and that's win the election, and everything you do has to go to that. And in transition, you're working on multiple things because you're working on policy initiatives. What do you want to do right at the beginning? Uh, what do you want to tell people that you're interested in? So healthcare was an early initiative but uh, for Obama, but also he was interested in, in dealing with the financial meltdown. And so you had the American Recovery Act. You had, he wanted to send a signal that, um, that they were interested in equality uh, for work, for women. And so you had the Lilly Ledbetter uh, Act signed, which uh, uh, guarantees equal pay. And then you had SCHIP, which was the Children's Health Insurance Program. He signed that as well. And another measure uh, talking uh, gave him a way to pivot to, uh, to health care. So those are all things that you think about uh, well beforehand. And the group that's thinking about it is your transition team. So it's doing multiple things at the same time. So if you ever had groups that should, that should look chaotic because they're doing so many different things, it would be transition, but it isn't. And it's a quiet operation that's, uh, that's well-guided. People might not understand because they think of Hillary Clinton's campaign as being based in Brooklyn and Trump's campaign being based in New York City and Trump Tower. But the transition teams are located in Washington, D.C., and as I understand it, they're in the same building and different floors. And that is that is kind of an effort that the U.S. government is supporting, right? Yes. Explain how this works, that the U.S. government, the taxpayers, are supporting the effort of two staunch rivals mm-hmm. as each team prepares in the same building in Washington, D.C. Yes, that, that's true. And you would expect it to be, uh, uh, I guess... I want to be in that elevator. What does it <laughs> yes, look like in that the, elevator? In the elevator? One of the things when you go in the elevator, um, there's somebody from the General Services Administration that deals with, um, uh, with the Trump uh, operation, and then there's somebody that deals with the Clinton operation. And uh, so the first time I went up, the, uh, the, G, the General Services Administration person, um, they, you can only go to those floors by a key card. And so she uh, did the key card for the, um, uh, for the Clinton floors and said, this is a shared elevator. <laughs> so I said, you mean <laughs> that we're not supposed to talk about anything that the other team is not supposed to know about? Right. <laughs> yeah, so they're very aware of that. Diplo speak, shared yes. elevator. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that, uh, that you see, that, that those two operations are separate in the same space, but in, in circumstances where you see the uh, representatives of the two transitions together in, um, in a meeting, that um, they are able to deal with each other very, uh, very easily. Because they, everyone knows they're working towards the same goal of being prepared to govern. The General Services Administration uh, first came into the act in uh, a piece of legislation, the Presidential Transition Act of 1963, which was actually uh, signed in 64. 
And prior to that act, it was the political parties that gathered up the money for a transition. But now, um, and gradually, GSA was, uh, was in the government were providing the money and providing office space that they find around Washington that the federal government owns or leases and uh, is not being used. And so those are where, that's the place where they house them. In 2010, there's a piece of legislation passed, the, pre, the Pre-Election Presidential Transition Act. And that act provided for space once you had the National Party nominating conventions finished and the two major candidates um, had been uh, nominated, then uh, they provided space for, uh, for, both, uh, for both sides. Now in 2012, which is the first year of the act, uh, President Obama, of course, already had his space and he wanted to keep it too and did. Um, and uh, Romney got space in uh, a GSA building. Usually what they do is take a building that's under, um, under renovation and uh, give them the space for the, for the time period of the transition. And the way they had worked it in 2012 was that after the election, um, the election was on Tuesday, and they made them vacate the space on Friday. And uh, which seemed very harsh, and now that is not going to be the case. And so this year is the first time that you've had both major party candidates having space, and so they chose to do it in that same building. But after the election, there is different space, because this is lease space, and there are only so many things that they could do. And to really secure it, what you need to do is have a space at the General Services Administration headquarters. And they're creating a space for, a, um, uh, for, the, for the president-elect that's secure, that they're going to keep that same room from, uh, from, time to, from one administration to another so that they won't have to uh, redo it. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, important because of the security, yes. the cybersecurity issues have made a difference in, in how they work. One of the things that uh, I've learned from talking to you over the years is that there is now a, uh, a large number of actors, both government, GSA is one, FBI helps with appointments in terms of doing background checks. But can you describe some of the outside entities that have really taken an interest and are very respected, including yours, the White House Transition Project, but how they are trying to be helpful to no matter who it is, right? It's a nonpartisan effort that is, uh, you know, it's a collection. Congress has been interested in this through legislation. The FBI helps with the appointments. We have GSA providing space as as the emissaries of the American Mm -hmm. people. And and these independent groups like yours, as one example, trying to be really helpful. How has that worked over, over time? Right. So you have other agencies, too, because you have the Office of, of Personnel Management the, um, that is, uh, puts out a list of all the government positions. You have the Office of Government Ethics that works with the, um, uh, the transition operations on financial disclosure and all the things 
the information that people have to gather there. You have the National Archives and Records Administration, which is going to spend a lot of time telling people exactly how the record system works. You mean uh, email, Martha? <laughs> including, including, especially email. Retention of your email. Right. And uh, gradually over the years, there are more and more groups that have, have been interested in, uh, in transition. And if, if one of them that has been particularly uh, important in bringing together uh, government uh, people and the candidate representatives is the Partnership for Public Service that's headed by Max Steyer. And uh, Max got into transition in 2008 and um, had a conference in uh, May of that year, uh, and then one in um, another one in May in 2012, and this year it was in uh, April, and bringing together candidate representatives and people in government who are involved in the transition project, in uh, transitions, um, and people who had been in the past, and having them talk together about how important transitions are. And that early meeting was important, I thought, uh, which took place in New York at Pocatico Hills, uh, which is the Rockefeller Brothers' estate. And he's funded in part by the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, by bringing people together, he could um, uh, help them get an idea of the multiple things that you have to do during transitions. In, uh, and then he's kept up his meetings. He's now had four of them uh, with candidate representatives and uh, government officials so that people who are knowledgeable from the past and the present can get together with those representatives from the transitions and, and help them plan things out. In our project, our project focuses on the White House. And so what we do is it's a group of scholars. There are two dozen uh, of us, and we prepare information on White House offices because when a uh, president comes in and their staffs, they find uh, pretty empty, uh, <laughs> empty computers, empty spaces with, because with the Presidential Records Act of 1978, all of the records need to move um, out of a White House and um, onto a, into a warehouse that uh, is holding the records of that president for the presidential library. And in fact, the records have uh, started to be transported to the Chicago warehouse. They recently started... President Obama's records. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the National Archives started moving those records. So uh, when you come in, how do you find out about your office? Because there's nothing written about it. So one of the things that, that we do that's an important and basic part of the project is we've taken a dozen offices that are important to a good start, like chief of staff, council, um, staff secretary, and uh, this year we're doing a first lady's office and legislative affairs. And uh, what are the functions of those offices over time? and um, what are the responsibilities of the directors of the office. And we do it through interviews that I do and a, and a couple of other people in our project do with people who have headed the office. Like, for example, in, with legislative affairs, I've gone back to the Nixon administration talking to uh, pretty close to a dozen people who ran that office. And so you get a sense, 
in the case of legislative affairs of the continuity of the office. That um, because the Congress is shaped as it is, that the Office of Legislative Affairs is going to mirror it. So it's broken down into a House and Senate. And uh, people may operate it in different ways, but that's pretty, pretty basic. On the other hand, you have one like Intergovernmental Affairs that um, is a very important uh, office because while we have such uh, division at the national level, and um, sometimes in the gubernatorial level, but at the level of mayors and local government, that's where policy is carried out. And so it's really important for a White House to have a strong intergovernmental affairs operation. So in most White Houses, that office has been an independent office headed by an assistant to the president. In uh, this administration, it is subsumed under a... um, larger office called Public Engagement that uh, Valerie Jarrett uh, runs, and it is at the deputy level. So it's possible that in the next administration uh, that might change, but you still will have that unit, even if it does somewhat uh, different things and has different visibility. You've mentioned uh, the White House, and it is really interesting that from president to president, certain things can change in the way they want to organize, but the functions tend to be somewhat consistent, even if there's a change of parties. But one of the things that I know that you've written about in the past is and talked about is that um, when we start to play the parlor game in the media that we all do about who's going to get you know, which cabinet position, you're paying more attention to the, whether they've been thinking through what they're going to do inside the White House. And, and your belief is that that's where a, a president-elect should start, to really get a good team and a really good sense of how they want to organize in the West Wing. Why have you d- decided from all the interviewing that you've done and the research that that should come first before thinking about your cabinet? White House comes first. That's uh, it's a, I, I think, a definite um, uh, mantra for, uh, for people to, uh, to think about. And the reason why is that the White House is your decision-making system. So you need to have a, a, a chief of staff um, uh, set up. You have to have uh, your personnel, your counsel, All of those are going to be important right at the beginning because, and your staff secretary. The staff secretary is one of those positions that nobody knows much about, but it's important because the person controls the paper flow to and from the president, and that's very much at the heart of the decision-making system, and it's usually a person that's close to the chief of staff because you want to know what information does a president need and what information does the president want before uh, making a decision because you don't want to make a decision on uh, on on cabinet members really before you have uh, thought about that White House and how you're going to put it together and thought about your decision-making system and uh, what kind of paper do you want uh, coming to the president what constitutes a mature decision because you, you need all of your information before you make decisions, because if you don't have it, then you can have trouble with your uh, cabinet positions. And we've seen, uh, we saw that in the Clinton administration, for example, and uh, on the Attorney General. So he, had, he went through so many 
uh, people thinking about so many different people um, because the first one, uh, uh, Zoe Baird, blew up on him. So he didn't have an attorney general in place until uh, March. And by that time, very shortly after that, um, you had the siege at Waco. And the attorney general was very much uh, needed in that discussion. But she hadn't been involved in it at earlier. It started with um, uh, the ATF, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, um, trying to serve a, a, a warrant on um, uh, Koresh. And, um, and then you had a, a gun battle, and, and then you, you, know, you ended up uh, later with uh, that tragic fire in which so many people were killed. And you would not have, in the early run-up, the Attorney General. And the Attorney General wasn't in place when there was an attack on the World Trade Center. We forget that there was an attack in February of 93 in which uh, people were killed in um, the World Trade Center. So there are a lot of things that happen early on, and you need your, you need your cabinet members in place. So you can't afford to have one of them not, um, uh, not be there right from the beginning. The beginning is important because it's a time when you have the greatest goodwill, that uh, people want to see a president succeed. And in addition to that, people are listening. Mm -hmm. And that is something that a president loses. You know, they, they start yawning after, after a few months. So you want to take advantage of that time of both the goodwill and the attention the public has. And so you want to get it right. If it's the case that planning for a transition, no matter how thoughtful the transition has been, is not a guarantee, which I know you've written, it's not a guarantee of a smooth, well-oiled machine in the first 100 days or the first year or whatever, what are some of the common mistakes that you've seen made? Is, there, is it that there is an assumption that if you've had a good transition, everything's going to be great? Or... Is it that there hasn't been enough thought to the range of things that in our real world, on our real world politic, they're going to face? Or is it external events? What are some of the mistakes you've seen? One of them is, um, is, uh, not, is not planning your White House, of trying to make decisions before you have a decision-making system. I think another would be focusing on a particular issue and to the exclusion of others. So, for example, uh, Clinton focused on uh, the economy. Bill Clinton. Yes, and had uh, and had an event in uh, in Arkansas um, around it, and but didn't think about some of the other things that uh, that needed to be done. And uh, it, it, the advantage was that he did have a good start as far as uh, the economy was concerned and, and uh, creating some management positions with it, like the National Economic Council, which uh, still exists. But um, it, it was done in a, in a piecemeal kind of way. And I think also uh, one of the things that a president-elect uh, needs to do is make that transition from being a candidate to being president. And uh, in a way, it's, that's, uh, that's not so easy to do. Um, first thing you've got to do is take a vacation. And that is important to recharge your batteries. 
because you're going to really, and all the people around you are going to uh, be just spent, their energy spent. And so you need to take the vacation first, and then you need to stay out of the limelight. You can start making your decisions, but you have to uh, stay out and then come to town as president. And the person who I thought uh, did that most successfully was President Reagan. And uh, what he did was stayed out and um, he did vacation. And then when he came to Washington, he gave a party. And he gave a party at a club in Washington. Um, it was a fancy uh, party. And uh, not only did he have members of, of the Republican Party, he brought in uh, Democrats. Uh, so just as in, is important to um, uh, having uh, people who had supported him were people like Robert Strauss, who uh, was a long-serving Democrat, uh, who he enjoyed. And he had Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House. And he made sure to include not only uh, Democrats who were uh, congressional leaders and uh, and other members of Congress, but also people who were the power brokers in Washington. And one of the reasons I think he, he, he did that is they recognized that when Carter came to town, um, who was, uh, Jimmy Carter was his predecessor, remember, and he had not come to town in the same way, and that Washington had not welcomed him. And so what he, in a sense, did was he welcomed Washington, and he, was saying in that, that, just that event, he was saying, I, am, uh, I need all of you, and that together we are going to govern. And then he went up to the hill and uh, talked to the, uh, the following day and talked to uh, Tip O'Neill and went to the Supreme Court, which is a traditional thing too for the um, president-elect to do. And so he went to them to, to show that he was willing to make the gesture at this point. And then in his inauguration, went the day he was inaugurated, right afterwards, uh, while they were uh, getting preparing for the luncheon, he uh, had discussed a memo that he was uh, issuing a memo uh, for the federal government agencies and departments, freezing hiring, and also freezing any purchases of furniture and that sort of thing, because he wanted to send the message that he had had during his campaign. He wanted it to resonate that he was there to cut back, cut back spending, cut back government. And, um, and so he wanted to do it that first day so that people knew where he was. And, and from that time forward, you have presidents doing things on the first day to let people know what their leadership style is, which Reagan certainly had uh, demonstrated uh, uh, in, the, in the interim period and then also in his uh, first days in office, uh, who he was, although people were pretty familiar with him to start off with. but. They were most recently familiar with him as a candidate. Now they were familiar with him as a president. And that is the kind of thing that, um, uh, that particularly this year, which has been such a 
nasty uh, campaign year that it's going to be very important for the whoever wins the election to make that transition from being a candidate to being the president of all the people. One of the things that we have heard um, uh, Secretary Clinton has done behind the scenes is reach out to some of her former colleagues in the Senate uh, from both sides of the aisle and to suggest to them quietly, privately, that she, if she's elected, she wants to work with them. And you mentioned how important it is to try to get, if you're president-elect, get the Senate to take up your nominees in a swift, smooth, successful fashion in which you can sequence the filling out, not just at the top, not just the secretary level, but then several levels below. What have outside groups in Congress done over time to try to make that process go a little bit smoother? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult process because if you come in with a heavy legislative agenda, then uh, one of the things that you have, uh, your nominees have to do is go through committee consideration. So you have committees considering your, uh, your legislative agenda at the same time that you have them considering nominees. And so that is a... Um, uh, that is a hard process. And they take up early. They'll take the Senate will take up early because it's um, uh, Senate confirmation. So the House is not involved. Although if you're, I remember a, a former member saying that if you're a, um, uh, a, smart, uh, uh, a smart cabinet secretary, you'll make sure and go over and see the House uh, committee chairs and the ranking minority pe uh, people. And so he was, uh, he was pointing out that he talked to a colleague who said that uh, there's a particular cabinet member, Arnie Duncan, uh, who was uh, education, and he, uh, that um, Arnie Duncan had done that and had talked to um, House members as well as senators. And, and, uh, and one uh, Republican was saying that um, uh, he didn't office, uh, often support his legislation, but he felt bad about it because he was uh, such a nice and cooperative uh, person. So you don't want to ignore uh, the House, too. But in the, in the Senate, there have been efforts to try to uh, cut down the number of, of people that require confirmation. So I have one last question for you, and that is about President Obama. One of the interesting things in watching President Obama this week is that he is zipping through every battleground state, working uh, intensively to get Secretary Clinton, his former Secretary of State, to succeed him. He wants her to win. And he has publicly declared that Donald Trump is unfit to be president. But by the same token, behind the scenes in the White House, President Obama and his team are tasked to be responsible in, in trying to smooth the way for whomever it is that the voters decide should be the next president. Can you describe what it is that the White House is doing, as you just mentioned, to have a smooth transition out of power, not just for himself and his legacy and his library, but to smooth the way for whoever succeeds him? Yeah, I, I think that um, the president has a stake in having a good transition on many levels, on the institutional level as well as the personal level. One of the things we often forget is that the president occupies an office, the presidency, 
and that you want the presidency to succeed. You want continuity in that office, and you want it to be effective and successful. And uh, he recognized, uh, President Obama recognized what an important uh, job President Bush had done of, of leaving a government in uh, as good shape with information that, uh, that they could use that would help them govern. And that they worked with them from early. Josh Bolton, who was the chief of staff, worked with um, the, the McCain and Obama team starting in, in the summer. And so uh, President Obama said that he wanted to do at least as good a job as President Bush had done, and hopefully that he would do a better job. And so what that means is you're tasking your chief of staff who runs the Transition Coordinating Council and the other senior advisors with making sure that uh, that the agencies pull together the information, like on, on budgets and, and programming, and think through what information do people need. The, uh, the transition uh, the Agency Transition um, uh, Council, the uh, Transition Directors Council, uh, that one, they're uh, thinking through, one of the things they were thinking through was what information was useful in 2008. And so when they, uh, when they are preparing for this transition, they talk to people about who came into office and said, of the materials you've got, what did you use? And what information do you want? In what form? And, and what were you missing? Yes. And so one of the things they found was that people didn't like big briefing books. Mm. Uh, what a shock. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what they wanted was uh, concise, uh, short things. I mean, you can provide information that will uh, serve, in a sense, as an appendix. Um, but they've really tried to take that to heart and, and figure out what people wanted and then as well, what do they really need to know? So they've involved, the agencies have involved um, people throughout their agency in working up what are the most important issues that our agency is uh, dealing with. And so they've worked it up from level to level. And so it's been a good process for the agencies as well. But one of the difficulties in, a, in a, uh, preparing for a transition when you're going out of office is you want to do two things, uh, well, three things, because he's, he's working to get Hillary Clinton elected. But also, they're finishing up their policy agenda. I mean, look at all the rules and regulations that uh, that are uh, that are still that, uh, right that are still efforts, coming yeah. out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, there's a lot of policy action is going on. And so, how do you uh, mesh all of the policy work uh, and at the same time prepare to leave? And, uh, and prepare for new people to come in. And that's where career uh, civil servants are so important because they are the ones that are really doing the basic work for the transition. And it's your political appointees that, um, uh, that are going to be working on your policy agenda and making sure that gets through.